Welcome to the Enormous Issues Audacious Ideas podcast. I'm your host, Ria Naidu. I'm an entrepreneur, founder, and technologist, and I'm on a mission to change the world by developing and inspiring world-changing leaders. One way I'm doing that is through working with entrepreneurs that want to change the world through their mission-driven businesses. And another way I'm doing it is through this podcast where I am uplifting, empowering, and amplifying the voices of incredible leaders. If that sounds exciting to you, go ahead and subscribe to this podcast. And if you'd like to support this important work, I ask that you share it with one or two of your friends who, like you, have dreams of creating a better world. My guest today is an incredible woman who has made a very interesting and important switch from a long and fruitful, excuse the pun, career in nonprofit to launching her own benefit corporation. She has an architecture, law and urban planning background and has been a professor at both Cal State University at Northridge as well as USC. In 2000, she founded a nonprofit that addressed sustainability and food security in low income populations whilst challenging ordinances and public housing policies that restricted home gardening and urban farming. She's also a mom. And in 2019, Sabrina became the CEO and founder of Seed, a very interesting organization which we're going to hear a lot about today. Her name is Sabrina Williams. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Ria, for having me. It's it's great to be here with you. So I've got to get this out like right away, but your name is a really awesome name because the first time I heard Sabrina Williams, I was like, hey, are you introducing me to Serena Williams? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, of course, you must know I get that all the time. And, um, you know, I, I wish, first of all, that would be awesome. But you know what? Uh, Serena's doing great things. I'm happy to just be in her company and be even thought of in the same moment. And I'm doing great things. So, you know, we're, we're both doing it. And, and it's great if people think of us at the same time. Yes, I agree. So Sabrina Williams, you are in the League of Giants. I love it. Yes. So tell me, I hear you are quite the musician yourself, and you play a very interesting instrument. Yes, yes, that's quite the lead up, yes. That interesting instrument is an accordion. And I was one of those kids that when I was eight years old, when my parents said, hey, you know, you'd like to learn an instrument, how about a piano? How about a guitar? And I said, "Um, how about accordion? And for some reason... (laughs) They just figured that was just normal for me. So yeah, when I was eight, I started the accordion and I had this huge instrument and little kid and I loved it and I still love it. And yeah, it's, it's a fun thing to pick up every once in a while and, and get some noise out of. So yeah, that's fascinating. And you're also a singer and you play and sing in a band. So yes. tell me about that. Where do you find the courage and the audacity to get up on stage in front of people and sing? You know, it's really amazing because singing is something, much like when people dance and they just, when you're doing it, you forget in that moment. 
singing is like that for me. And I have a real opportunity came my way to do it with my daughter. And we are the lead singers of a band called Dapper Rebels. And it's just joyful music. It's ska music. And it's just fun. Mm. People dance. We're dancing. It's upbeat. I think the courage comes from, I, I, I wouldn't even call it courage. I know not a lot of people can get up on stage and do that, but it's just seeing th that people are so excited and happy when you're doing it. And, and then I'm excited and happy and I, I just, I like making sounds come out of my mouth <laughs> that do that for people. So that's, mm. um, it's a real joy. I like that because I think it's that shift of the perspective from really focusing on me and it's what do I sound like, how am I going to find the courage versus really focusing on the impact that you're having on others and then all of that fear goes away when you're focusing right. on doing this amazing thing, performing Absolutely. for people. I think that's a great way to, to think about it even more so, just that you're doing something, you're giving a gift to someone else. Yeah, so I've been working with this performer energy for quite some time myself, and I see my performance in my dancing and singing as I've grown in courage in that space and being able to step out of myself more and really do this for other people. I also have seen a parallel shift in how I am able to talk to audiences in a professional setting, right. even do this podcast and command audiences, maybe with very senior clients, CEOs of very large companies. And I do think that there's a similar kind of mindset shift as I've grown as a performer and how it's affected my other parts of my life. Have you seen something similar? Definitely. I think this idea of overlaps and it's primarily in the spaces where I'm giving because when you give, you get. And I feel like whether it's on stage singing, whether it's on stage presenting to talk about food security, whether I'm talking to a bunch of preschoolers, whatever, that bits of joy that go out and come back in, it's all something that happens that's collaborative. And so if you're feeling good in one of these areas, you're taking that back into the other space. It's very circular. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like mm -hmm. this layer cake. So mm -hmm. that layer cake, you're bringing some slices to another area because you built up there and then that frosting goes to another space. So mm -hmm. The idea that, yes, you grow in one place and you bring it to others, I think, is key. But that happens because it's bringing you happiness and joy because you're giving and getting. Mm. So. I, I like it because I think it's taking a concept that we've explored in other episodes in this podcast and it's peeling the under, oh gosh, it's peeling the... <laughs> the underwear. Well, no, no, not peeling the underwear. <laughs> We're peeling the onion one layer. <laughs> <laughs> I knew where you were going. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope that doesn't make into the episode, but I have a feeling it might. Peeling the onion back a level where you're saying there's two aspects of it. One, you are doing it with the purpose of service right. to others. And there's like this underlying value system that you resonate with. And as a result, this creates joy and that's a resonant space to be and you're doing it with authenticity and how you know it's an authentic space that's steeped in your value system is because there's joy in the activity it doesn't feel yes. like work that's absolutely mm. it 
not feeling like work. And I think you can go to work, right? We all go to work, but does it feel like work or does it not feel like work? So using that word and being clear on what you mean with that word, I think is Mm -hmm. is the difference. I'd love to go next to your incredible journey and your story. Have you ever had a traditional jobby job Mm. or have you always had this sense of seeking out these careers and this work that doesn't feel like work because I I have walked a long time in a career that really felt like work and I was working very long hours and I was miserable nothing was resonating and now I work just as long hours but I'm so happy and nothing feels like work have you had that experience yeah absolutely and I think this is really key to what you're doing here with folks who are participating with you is is helping people understand that it's not that your time opens up somehow when you're being an entrepreneur. And I mean, if, if anything, it's the opposite, right? I mean, you are just bogged down in so much, so much more, but it doesn't even feel that way. And the reason is because it's not work. You are doing something that's fulfilling. And so to answer your question about where I've come from getting here, I've had maybe one jobby job and <laughs> was um, in a law firm. And even there, I was doing things kind of a little bit unorthodox for my own way of getting things done. I worked with folks that were helping me, that were helping me complete my task. I enjoyed being with people that were creating documents and doing these sort of what people might consider a lot of underling tasks. I really enjoyed all that kind of work because I got to work with people or talk to people and find out about their lives and problem solve. So maybe that's the one jobby job. I love that phrase. I'm going to use that all the time, that term, jobby job. But everything else has been a starts. Like I find something that I enjoy and I move to that. And then I realize, oh, there's a problem within that that needs to be solved. And it kind of morphs into this other kind of environment or context. And then that context, I see, oh, I'm defining this problem even further. And then I move on to something else. And so from the outside, it might look like a series of jumping from lily pad to lily pad, but it's all the same pond. I'm still trying to solve the same kind of issue, which is how can I make things easier for people in need? Mm. And what that has looked like has been different, whether it's housing, food, working in different areas of policy of community organizing, but it's always been the same. So absolutely, there is not been one key position that I've taken that one might say is very traditional, but everything has been a non, I would say, yes, a non-job traditional job job (laughs) i swear we'll get to your story but there's just so much here to unpack (laughs) so i work with a lot of people who are entrepreneurs in the early stage or thinking about going off to be an entrepreneur Mm -hmm. and a lot of them say i feel like this is who i am as a person and they might have some of the qualities that you have demonstrated like Mm -hmm. starting things exploring connecting dots all of these great qualities that make you an entrepreneur but they say, oh, I don't have a solution. I don't have an idea that's good enough. Mm -hmm. And what I'm hearing from you is that you didn't start with the answer. You started with a Mm -hmm. very, very clear purpose statement, a driving force. You asked a question, which was, how can I make things easier for people in need? And that is a fundamentally different way of approaching starting a business. And tell me about how, how you got to that space. 
Oh, yes. Yes. This is great. I started in college. I was going to be an architect. And my last year, my thesis project was housing near what's now the Century Freeway here in Los Angeles. And basically the freeway slashed through this neighborhood and we were as students to go out and figure out what kind of housing could be put in its place. And I'm bright-eyed, bush-tailed, going in thinking I'm (laughs) doing something. And the people were so mad. And I was like sitting there thinking, why are you so mad? Like I was so naive and and dumb about it. And I started talking to people and I was started getting mad too. Like, whoa, your house was just taken? Wait, what do you mean? I've never heard of such a thing happening like that. Just not very knowledgeable 21 year old. And realized like, whoa, there's this whole piece of law that they just take people's property and tear it down. And can we do something? And the people were just, you know, kind of like, yeah, we could have done something 10 years ago. And so that was surprising to me. And that made me take a turn into law because I thought, wow, I can build all I want. But what about people's rights and their homes and everything that they have a a need to have support in? So that got me into law school. And I started looking at civil rights and social justice and housing is where I landed. Mm -hmm. So I was doing a lot of work with residents, low-income residents to help them save their homes, got me into policy and started after law school, working in law a little bit, realized that's the jobby job that I realized, whoa, I'm not really enjoying this environment, but I still want to help people. So that was how I started my nonprofit in 2000. At that point, I realized I don't know that much about how I'm helping people. Let me get a policy understanding. And I went back to school for urban planning. And during that time, I worked with a large national nonprofit to help residents in 40 states save their housing. There was a large federal push there. So I was traveling, 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 meeting people. Finally incorporated my nonprofit because that large nonprofit was going to stop doing the work. So I said, Mm -hmm. I can't let these people fall. So I did that. And during the course of that, and saving people's housing, I learned that they weren't allowed to grow plants and food at their own apartment. There are rules, tons of rules around that. So instead of letting people have nutrition and even culturally just people bringing with them practices that made them feel Mm -hmm. good and feel connected to each other, Mm -hmm. housing authorities were not allowing that to happen. So that was the next piece of advocacy and policy that I jumped on was how do you get people the right? How do you help them get the right to grow food at their own public housing? So I started keeping basically a census of public housing gardens where people were able to do that and providing documents for people to bring to powers that be so that they could advocate on their own behalf. And that's how I moved into food security, Hmm. really, was, um, you know, it's all still within the realm of low-income folks. And it's ridiculous to think that you can't grow your own food. Have a house plant. Yeah, have plants. Have herbs. Food. Yeah. I mean, come on. And what they've, you know, we've heard in the common parlance of food deserts. So you have all these food deserts, Mm -hmm. yet you're not letting people 
grow food. So tell us for the listeners at home, what is a food desert and how does a food desert typically end up coming into existence and what is the impact? Yeah, I would just preface this by saying people don't call it a food desert very often anymore. I mean, there are still municipalities and areas where they do, but because it's a term most people know, it's an area where the majority of residents do not have access to fresh and nutritious food. So there are a lot of corner markets, maybe liquor stores, just places where they're not getting fresh produce and they're not able to get that need met. They have to travel much farther than any of us generally has to to get those needs met. You can't just swing by your local grocer and pick up some uh, tomatoes. You have to go to the Dollar Tree and get some canned stuff. That's right. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes, even if there is produce, it's not fresh. So we'll see the buildup of fast food. And believe me, I get it. Fast food. We're not shaming people about this. We're just saying there has to be (laughs) options. (laughs) <laughs> but there has to be options. I don't know. Right? I mean, I, I think there needs to be a little bit of shame. I think, you know, I think at some point it's an education. It's an opportunity to educate. Sure. That's what I like to say. Because when the nutritious foods are five times more in cost than some of these fast food options, of course, people are going to easy to do the cheaper option. So part of our work my work with the nonprofit NSEED has been to educate. You know, we're all about education. Yeah. But that would be how one would describe a food desert. And of course, the impact is all kinds of health problems. First of all, we know that access to health care is, is sometimes impacted depending upon where you live. But if you already have a lot of health problems and you can't get health care, this is just a, a recipe for disaster, which it has been. Mm. So that's the, the impact. You have obesity, hypertension, all sorts of resulting issues that come out of not having proper nutrition. Yeah. Even my mind did not go to communities that just don't have a choice, Mm -hmm. but fast food for economic reasons, for access reasons. I think if you have a choice, you shouldn't be drinking sodas and eating fast food. But if you don't have a choice, if you live in a situation and a neighborhood where you don't have access to to fresh options, then I agree with you. It's um, a completely different perspective that you're approaching the problem from. Okay, so Sabrina, we've talked about a couple of issues and challenges that are causing food security issues. We talked about policy issues, preventing people from growing food. We also talked about food deserts due to commerce and big box retailers moving into neighborhoods and starving out the the moms and pops and poorer communities not having access to food. But what other factors are putting food security at risk? Yeah, definitely, I'd say key among them right now is climate change. And this idea that it doesn't touch people directly, that some people try to, you know, that argument they put forward is just so false. And this is one of the ways that that happens. I mean, our soil, I talk about soil all the time. And our soil is being depleted, there are monocultures, the things that are happening to the soil because of climate change, and vice versa, the things that are happening to the soil that are causing impacts on the climate is really going to be one of the huge issues moving forward in terms of food security. If we get our soil right, we will grow more and we will feed more people. So I think the idea that we pay more attention to how we are, say, managing crops that are in the soil, how we're sequestering more carbon in the soil. These are key things that we're going to have to focus on, and they are a primary factor in food security right now. Sorry, my dog is barking at uh, cars because she hates cars. 
Peach, please be quiet. <laughs> I know she's a fruit herself. <laughs> oh, Peach. <laughs> so, do you have any stats to share about how bad the soil is and how quickly it's declining? Yeah, I mean, it varies. Obviously, worldwide, we're in different environments. I, I've seen stats that upwards of forty percent of what is produced does not get to people, and that's that's such a huge number. And working around the soil, what we do know is that the ways that you keep it healthy, the ways that you monitor and sequester carbon, carbon soil organic matter, this is the way that you're going to produce more crops. People whose food ways have depended upon that are now being impacted. So you're talking indigenous folks, people of color who have practices that they've put in place over centuries, millennia. I don't know. You know, we're not giving those the do that they should. We should be focusing on how those folks have made it work, how they've improved the soil. And so the numbers, who knows what the numbers are? I mean, really, we know they're bad. We know the percentages are high in terms of what is lost. And we have an opportunity through seed and companies doing what we're doing to kind of reverse the trend. And that's what we want to do. So tell me, tell me about Seed. Yes. Yeah, so Seed came out of an effort through the nonprofit that I ran for 20 years where we were working with residents after we went into policy for food security, started realizing, well, shoot, now that we've got all this policy in place, let's get people growing so they can take advantage of what's been put out there. And so we started workshopping and having people come in and learn how to, not just how to grow things, but to be comfortable again in growing things because there's a, there's a stigma in a lot of low income and communities of color about growing food. I mean, it goes in the black community sharecropping. The younger generation doesn't want to think like, oh, I'm going back you know, to my ancestors <laughs> growing food as a sharecropper. And it's like, no, that's not what it is. You're growing food so that you can feed your family. So overcoming that, there was a lot of education there, but showing people, letting the elders come into these workshops and be able to provide some education to young people and once you get kids growing, they run with that. And so that was one of the goals. We went into junior highs and elementary schools to get kids started with their first seeds. So just tell me, like, so when you say once you get kids growing, they run with that, what do you mean by that? Kids are amazing. They, uh, I mean, maybe that goes without saying, but when they see something that they put in the ground come out, and then they realize, oh my goodness, that turns into a piece of food that I can eat. They just want to keep doing it. They want to make more of it. And it's really kind of cute and funny, but also great because that's the future. That's where you're going to get that interest in where does your food come from? Is it fresh? Now people are you know, concerned. These kids are concerned and thinking about, well, did it come from somewhere far away or did it come from a yard nearby or the farmer's market? And interested in foods that they wouldn't have necessarily had even known about. So I tell the story all the time of this little girl who had eggplant for the first time because she grew it. And so things like that, that you just become familiar with because you made it happen, that educational and experiential piece of it is so important. And it gets them started A and takes them all the way through. And they just keep wanting to come. And they love to get dirty, right? <laughs> Kids love their hands. I mean, I think that's one of the key pieces. This is permission mm. to actually put your hands in the dirt and get something out of it. So there's all these pieces. And how incredible in this time of such an explosion of technology, 
Mm-hmm. And technology, we think of it very much in the Western sense of this is an app. There's a sense of joy and elation when a kid that is, you know, stuck on an iPad the whole day puts their fingers in the dirt and has the permission to do that. I just get all warm, bubbly feelings inside just thinking about it. Yeah, absolutely. And then you do the reverse, right? So now the earth and natural things are privileged above the technology, but the technology is still important. I mean, it still serves a purpose because that you can still learn, use it as a support to do this other thing as opposed to the other way around. So I, I think there's still, obviously, I wouldn't be in this line of work if there wasn't a place for technology and all this. So tell me about the technology that you are bringing to the table. During the course of those workshops, we discovered through some makerspace fun that we were having, how to actually get an automatic irrigation system almost DIY through putting together a little system with a microcontroller, moisture sensors, all the wires, you know, the the whole breadboard, all that sort of thing. And realizing, well, hey, this is so easy. Kids love it. Their older adults around them love it. It's, it's not difficult to now automatically water your plants on your own sort of schedule. You can introduce coding, all sorts of pieces to this. And some of the volunteers of the nonprofit were asking about, how do I get a system like this? You know, I don't want to go through all the bells and whistles. Can you just make one? And it's like, hmm, yes, we can. (laughs) We can make one for you. So it sort of just snowballed out of that. I shuttered the nonprofit and started Seed as a benefit corporation so that we'd still have this responsibility to the public the way we want it to. But yeah, the technology is is a very simple technology that just helps you monitor your plants where they are. Not historical data that you get out of a book that summertime is 90 degrees, so water this much. It's literally a sensor at the site of your plant. And so that's the basic technology. And it's like a little Arduino. Yep. Is it a mm-hmm. Raspberry yeah, Pi Arduino, or an Arduino? Arduino based, exactly. And, mm-hmm. and so it basically has a series of sensors that monitor what temperature, yeah, you can, moisture. Exactly. You can expand it. We have with our, our small starter kit that we just started selling, it's only a moisture sensor with that. But mm-hmm. of course, you know, with these microcontrollers, all it takes is just a little bit of coding. You just can add mm-hmm. that element. But our, our next big piece is the carbon piece, mm-hmm. because that's where you start connecting with the soil that I've been proselytizing about the soil mm-hmm. and making sure that you're productive there. So you're basically testing how much organic material is in the soil, like compost mm-hmm. and other things that feed the, the vegetables yep. that you're growing. Yeah. And it's an opportunity for once you know how much, I mean, and critics will say it's, you're starting so small, but you know what? Everything starts small, right? Yeah. We all did. So the idea is that if the little guy, not the corporate farmer, but the little farmer is able to monitor and measure how much carbon they're sequestering, mm-hmm. they'll be able to take that information to the open market just like any other big organization can and monetize it, you know, get something back for their effort. So that's our plan. Amazing. So just levels and levels of this thing. And does this then send the data to an app or something like that? Like what is the yes. rest of this? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, so the the app 
that will come with this ultimate kit is really comprehensive. So not only does it allow you to input or follow the inputs that are coming from your own system, Mm -hmm. but it also lets you connect with other farmers in your community or other people right in your area. You can look at people across the country, but primarily for your area, someone's growing tomatoes around the corner. Why not know how they're doing that? And then you also have this educational component with kids being able to go onto the app and say, oh, but make it fun, of course. Oh, my tomato grew this fast and this time. Um, Here's my Mm -hmm. temperature. You know, maybe there's some homeschooling aspects to it. But the primary thing is to be connected to these farmers as well. Mm -hmm. When you buy one of these kits, support is provided to one of these lower income underserved farmers. So you can, through the app, also track and monitor, you know, the good that you're doing. Mm, Wow. Okay. Wow. So that's so many levels of feedback. And I'm just loving the ecosystem that you're building and just how you are using technology, which I feel in this moment is separating us Mm -hmm. and keeping us disconnected from each other as a community. You're using technology to kind of connect people and make them aware of how their actions are impacting others and how others are impacting them. And it's it's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's so important when we talk about this gets back to that theme of collaboration, right? I mean, talking about the different ways that we find joy in the world and we exercise that through collaborating with others. Technology is, is a great thing. It's actually really great. <laughs> I mean, none of us should ever say that it isn't, but we have to use it wisely. And I think there is a space for it in these natural environments and we just have to you know get the proper balance of it so tell me who is the target market so you're coming to market with your first product which is the starter kit so who's the target market for this i I mean i want to run out and buy one (laughs) i'm a vegetable garden i'm a herb garden i would like this information for myself i would like to not have to go all the way down to my veggie garden all the time and just check everything from my phone. So I'm going to buy one, but who is your perfect target audience? Yeah. I mean, for the starter kit, it it really did become a starter for schools and kids. So it was a way to get kids interested in very quickly. Herbs grow so fast. Here's two plants you can put in here, see them grow. Now you're hooked. When the pandemic started, it kind of moved into this area where for families and Um, Young people, they're looking for something to do with their hands. The supply chain of food in March of 2020, everybody was so worried about that. And so these are some, even though... Yeah, so like (laughs) impending doom. Oh my God, I'm not going to be able to eat anymore because the groceries are running out of pasta. Exactly. (laughs) And on the other hand, I have all this time and I need to find a new hobby so uh, maybe just take up gardening. Right. <laughs> no, it's so true. I mean, it sounds so, I mean, it is funny, like given where we are now and where we actually live and stuff. But <laughs> I think that that fear that came into people's heads, whether dramatically or not, the idea was, hey, now I can grow some food. So we wanted to be sure that they had something so simple and entry level for those people. And that's mm-hmm. where the you know the starter kit, the niche, we're hearing from people who have kids primarily, 
about the ease of use and it's getting my kid involved in growing. But it was also single people who now they're in their homes primarily alone, a lot of isolation, but this was a, a nice meditative, it's a really mental health improvement when you can grow mm. something, be responsible for something. And gardening has that dual thing of, yes, you're meditating on growing this thing and keeping it alive, but then you also get the benefit of eating it. And I know that <laughs> you know, this might be a little violent, you know, you're growing something to eat it, but plan you know it's nourishing it's nourishing so this is an issue that's very very near and dear to my heart and the reason for that is my dream was to live on a big property and be out of town and I've achieved that dream like pinch me oh my god and now I have this huge veggie garden I have this beautiful herb garden and I have all of the house plants that I, anybody would ever want. I have so many house plants. It's like a full-time job just taking care of these house plants. And I just adore them. I'm planting a succulent and cactus garden as well. I was fully plant-based for about three years. I'm sort of halfway there now, being a vegetarian. And I cook 90% of my own meals, um, mostly vegetarian-based from you know fresh greens that we we grow or purchase the ones that we don't grow and this journey of fresh vegetables of growing your own food of living a very clean diet has totally transformed my life it's transformed my body it's transformed my level of energy i don't have those post-lunch slumps like a lot of people do i eat a certain diet that i just don't have those problems i don't have any health issues and it's a total night and day change from when i was eating a lot of fast food junk food store-bought food and i might you could see it in my skin skin in my nails my hair I get so many compliments nowadays and I'm just like all I do is just eat well because guess what you are what you eat no doubt <laughs> <laughs> I, I absolutely agree with you on every single one of those points about why it's good to have some good nutrition Hmm. So it's a really important topic. And I think that a lot of folks that I'm like, oh, they rush out and they want to buy the hair products and they rush out, they want to buy the skin products. And all those are good too. I, I have nice products, but I think it's so much more important about what you put into your into your body. And so I, I just love that you're working in the space. It's just such an important space. But tell me, so you are an entrepreneur that came up with a product, a pretty complex product. It's microcontrollers, it's sensors, it's a whole box system, it's an app. Tell me about that journey as an entrepreneur. You don't have a tech background. How did you get from policy to, okay, I have a product that is coming to market. Like that is an incredible shift. Yeah. And I used to joke that I was such a Luddite. I mean, I still joke a little bit that way because I had no idea how pushing buttons and that whole thing. And I was really thinking I was mostly about people and organizing and on the ground and having talks. And then when I was working with a group called LA Makerspace, I, I helped them form their nonprofit arm. And so I had an opportunity to sort of just go and sit down at the table and tinker. Kids were there, adults were there. And I mean, I mean, things were happening, creating things, little robots, everything. And I felt 
really energized and just, wow, a piece of my brain was working. And so that was how the, the workshops created those irrigation kits. We took those to Cuba and I even learned more there about how to create a irrigation system because Cuba, they don't have very much at all. So they can take the littlest of things and make something super big. I came back with that knowledge and then created this kit. My first partner and I sat down and created a casing for it, started introducing it to people. And we had a large kit in the field for testing, larger than the starter kit. It was the full kit that includes solar, multiple plants, indoor and out wow. access. Of course, we had to shelve that for because the pandemic came. We'll get back to that. That's our, our the next step. But in any case, that was how the product developed. It was just this sort of, I know nothing. And now I can code, I solder, I cut, I laser cut, you know, I'm <laughs> doing all these things, old dog, new tricks kind of deal. But um, it's super fun. And when things work, the spirit of discovery, you should always be trying to learn new things, mm -hmm. especially when it's within an area that aligns with your overall goals of helping people. Mm. So to know that the thing I was learning was going to be able to be used that way made it even more exciting and fun. Wow. I just love that. And so I'm, I'm taking a couple of like life lessons for entrepreneurs away from this conversation. Like number one, have a really great question that you're trying to answer. It doesn't have to be the problem that you're trying to solve with whatever technical solution. There's like an underlying why do you really care? Like what really makes you tick? Which was, I want to help people in need or make li their lives easier. And then there's a sense of, you don't have to have the solution. You just have to go and tinker and ask the right questions. And then over time, by taking you out of your comfort zone, you were at a maker space, you have like a legal policy sitting planner background and you were like in a makerspace which is very very like mechanical and you know robotics and all these stuff and stuff and you took yourself out of your context in the background that you knew and you kind of translated your knowledge into this new space and there's like this meeting of disciplines there's an intersection of disciplines there which I feel is a trend we've talked about on the podcast in previous episodes and from there there was like oh ideas and then there was testing and then there's a third thing now that I'm hearing the market shifted because of COVID and you had planned on having this full kit but things changed and you were able to be super flexible and be like you know what, that's not what we're going to do. This is what we're going to do. That was our audience. That was our product. Now we're doing something completely different, but it's okay. What was that like? And and how do you, how do you flick so much? Yeah. I mean, to hear, like, that's amazing to, to listen to you describe it because it's, it's not until someone else describes it that you really can appreciate it because um, you're mm -hmm. living it. But I think that the flexing again gets to... You just have to have a, a purpose and you really, again, that word compulsion, you are just so compelled to do this thing. It pushes you forward. And yeah, the, the moving, it sounds like a lot. In my head, it doesn't seem like a lot at all. You are here with a problem. Oh, that's the next piece. Throw that away. Move on to the next thing. But you're always moving forward. 
there's never been a point where I felt like I was moving backward. Mm. You always can see the horizon and that's where you're going. And it's, it's not going to be a straight line. Mm. And probably cliche to say that there'll be trees, there'll be rocks. Mm -hmm. Do you choose to climb over the rocks or go around them, but still keep going forward? And that's what I feel like I've been doing. So in any entrepreneur's journey, including my own, there's always those moments of like, oh my God, I'm living my dreams. This feels like amazing. All those warm, fuzzy feelings. And there are also these moments of like, oh, damn oh my god what am I doing <laughs> this is terrible have I made the wrong decision do I need to go get a jobby job like exactly. or hey something happens this is not going to work anymore I have to do something differently how do you stay grounded and how do you stay motivated through those times yeah I mean definitely moments have come up and especially after responsible for another human being, it became even more to the point like, whoa, you better think about what you're doing here. You can't just, you know, I said earlier, lily pad to lily pad. It better be kind of a stable lily pad that you're jumping to. So absolutely that has happened. And it is even when I've felt like, okay, I have to choose something that's a little bit more stable. Even when I was running the nonprofit, I had to take on a client or something like that, that was all for the sake of stability, I always knew that I would not stay there. Like there was never any moment that I thought, okay, well, I'm, now I'm jumping here and this is it. Mm. I always understood that, that I was going to learn as much as I could at that place or mm. that stage or with that client, even the clients that were driving me crazy. Those were opportunities. That was a moment mm. for me to sit there and say, well, why am I here? What am I going to take away from this? But I'm leaving. Mm. I don't know, you know how long it's going to take for me to get to the next phase or, or move forward, but I will do so. Mm. And where does that come from? Where does that come from? I think it comes from this competition with myself, maybe mm -hmm. on some levels, that this version of me can't quit because you're not going to fulfill what you feel is your purpose. Mm -hmm. and, and again, that gets back to the helping. And well, this version of me did it up to this level and learned this much. Can the next version go beyond that? So maybe there's a, a, a bit of, hey, you cannot give up because that is, is not who you are. Mm. And gotten to this level before, you can do a little bit more. Take a deep breath and just go. I'm hearing so many great things. So I'm hearing this very clear voice in your head that is a very affirming voice because I think a lot of us have very negative thought patterns, these negative, we call them saboteurs, that keep talking to us and say, you can't do this, you don't deserve this, whatever it is. But you have managed, I'm sure you've had those, you might still have those, but you have succeeded in turning that around and through a very strong voice saying, this is not who you are connected with your identity. And then I also hear that that identity is not fixed. There's a version of yourself here. And then there's like a bigger, better version of yourself that you're working towards. And you have this, you've, you've almost stepped away from yourself and observed yourself in your journey. And you know that whatever you're experiencing now, however bad that is or difficult, that's going to change. 
and you hold yourself with that love and that understanding that you will grow and that you will go there. And it's, it's just so beautiful, like all these things that you're doing naturally. Well, thank you. I mean, it is, it's, it's nice to have that acknowledged, but also to, I don't want it to seem like it's some super easy thing. It's, it's, it's a process of, as you know, through practice, everything we do is a practice. Meditation is a practice. This isn't just something that you fall into. Or you and, read oh, in a book and then you're done. Yeah, you know? <laughs> no, no, no. You have to do it. There's action mm. and intention involved in it. Um, and so, yes, of course I get moments where I, I think, oh my goodness, this is, wow, what am I doing? But those moments don't last. Mm. And I have to let them happen mm. too. You have to be okay with being sad sometimes or, or feeling like you're, you're not moving fast. Mm-hmm. In particular, you know, as an entrepreneur, you want things to, to happen, but to understand that things come, you have to just keep plugging away. Mm. And it's not like plugging away in, in a dumb way, meaning, you know, not being thoughtful about something and letting something go when it's not working. It's plugging away if you have an end goal, this purpose, this this thing that you you see on the horizon. Keep going f- towards that, mm-hmm. and and again realizing that there may be stuff that comes in your way, but you're going to keep going mm-hmm. towards that. And maybe one of the things that comes in your way is being sad about it, or feeling like it's too hard, or you know, and being able to assess that, I think, is really important. No mm-hmm. one should ever go away from any entrepreneur thinking, oh, they had it so easy, no sadness or anything like that. Because, you know, that's that's a key piece of it, but it's how you keep striving forward. Mm -hmm. I love that. It's a sense of sitting with those emotions, not shying away from them, not avoiding them or acting like they don't exist, but sitting with it, but not letting that also take over you, define you, and keep you stuck. It's uh, clouds in the sky. These emotions, these faces are clouds in the sky, and just knowing that whatever the weather is like today, tomorrow has the opportunity to bring a completely new forecast. Absolutely. So much wisdom right here. Well, thank you. You are working as an entrepreneur in a mission-driven organization. What message do you want to send to others out there that want to change the world? And I'm sorry to say, it's a really wonderful thing to go off and do. I don't think anybody should shy away from a mission of wanting to make the world a better place. But they might be just a little bit afraid or unsure whether this is going to be successful, make them successful, give them everything that they want in life, whether it's a woo-woo idea anyway, if they're really going to make a difference, all these things that come up in the way. What is your message to these amazing, talented people out there? First of all, we don't know anything. We don't know if something's going to be successful. We don't know whether the the thing that we think is so important, other people will think is important. So the first piece is put it out there. You have to test it. You have to take that first step. You'll never know. Then beyond that, the the whole idea of if you're compelled to do something, generally following that, that's what's going to be your success point. That's what's going to make you feel good. So clearly, some people will make a lot of money doing things that make them feel good. And that's right on. Awesome. But I think 
even when you are doing something that's mission driven, you can't, or maybe you shouldn't measure your success in terms of how much you made. And in general, we can look at sociological studies about happiness and joy, and it's really community and helping others and feeling good where you are that mm. makes people happy. Mm. So maybe if you think in terms of where are you successful at being happy, you are going to, you know, now be able to say with, with your mission driven um, um, enterprise that, that you succeeded Mm. because that's the threshold. I think. I think that's such an important point. And I was working at a big corporation earning a scary amount of money uh, very recently and I was miserable. I was miserable. And now I'm working for myself. I'm building my business. I, I do plan on making a lot of money in my mission-driven business. But right now, I'm not making that much money as compared to what I was making before. And I am blissful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I am living each day like it's my last. And if today's my last day, I would say... I've lived my life well and made the choices that were in service of everything that I wanted out of my life. Yep, absolutely. And I think, you know, there are times when you're doing that and those resources and that other, you know, stuff, money, whatever the thing is, will come. No one's saying that can't be part of it. But in terms of having some satisfaction and feeling success, especially in a mission-driven enterprise, I think that you're doing it in the service of of something else. Mm -hmm. Therefore, your happiness and your success should come out of that same place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you you are feeding the well. Nice. Yes. Everyone has a well where you go to the well, this specific well, and you get nourished. You go to that well, and it's yeah. it's not nourishing you, right? So it kind of is like a hint that you're That's you're great. feeding the wrong well. <laughs> That's great. And, yes, absolutely. I love it. Mm, I'm gonna write that down. Mm-hmm. Metaphor. <laughs> mm. So, Sabrina, you've been a fantastic guest. I very 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 inspired. You're a black woman working for a community that is underprivileged, but also uh, specifically there's a race cutting to this as well. Tell me about that. Yeah, I think it's really important, especially given the last year in particular, but, you know, for communities of color, you know, obviously Black community that I'm most experienced with, um, people that are living in poverty and that sort of thing, I think it's it's beyond this past year. Mm. But let's just say for the, the focus that we all have come to this, the same place finally in looking at social justice and civil rights issues, um, they've gotten a wider view. And I think one of the pieces of this, there's so many intersections, and it's, it's not just a single issue aspect to think about social justice, food justice, sovereignty. Those are key. These are the ways that people can take control of their own lives bring resources into their own communities and have a benefit and improvement. And so as far as I'm concerned, this past year has helped shine a light on those kinds of issues as well. And this concept of intersectionality has taken 
on a whole different importance. And so, yeah, it's very important to me to talk about traditions and ancestors and food ways and culture and, and have a freedom to do that and also lift communities up while we're having those discussions. And food is a key way to do that. It's so important. You know, there's just so many levels of what you're doing in terms of uplifting the most vulnerable in our society. And I must say that it's been quite a week, hasn't it? A week and a half. Yes. And absolutely. how are you doing? How are you feeling about the Oh my goodness. Thank you. Thank you for asking. You know, I I think I've seen it said quite a few times now that um this is just the beginning of something. I hope it's the beginning of something. I hope it's not just an exception. You know, the verdict, in particular in the Chauvin trial. And so my hope is that that we just keep these conversations forefront. And it's a shame uh, that we still have statistic of people being killed. And beyond a shame, that's, that's such a... <laughs> way too gentle way of putting it. But I want us to keep the conversation going. I'm doing my best to do that and and just carry on with the work that I'm doing, um, infusing that sense of hope for justice into all the work that I do. That's beautiful. And yeah, I completely agree. I think that this is just the start of an incredible shift. And I think it's it's wonderful to see. It's, I mean, it's it's just, it's, it's almost like too little too late, but it, I guess it's never too late for change. Right. And there's just so many layers of emotions, but yeah, just my, my heart is with you and uh, your community. Yeah, and I think we just, we need to keep working. We all need to keep working, everybody mm-hmm. together. Mm. But as a South African who saw my world change mm. in my lifetime, my country change in enormous ways, uh, I, I just want to share that hope with you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I remember being a law student just when South Africa was starting to draft its own constitution and having access to a few of those early documents and just understanding that people were getting you know, information from our constitution here. And, and that was forming a, a basis. And, and if we could get back to that, like some of these sort of understandings about what justice is and basic levels of quality, um, at least in the words, mm-hmm. I think there is hope. There is, there is some hope if we can think of it that way. Mm-hmm. Sometimes there are no words, you know? <laughs> We, we kind of trail off when we're thinking about this, but I think that there is hope. I'm hopeful. I have a kid, so I'm always hopeful. <laughs> <you know? laughs> I see the future and I think we may just be okay. Mm. So the last thing, my last question to you really is in that space as well. I used to, and I've, I've spoken to others as well who are kind of in their second careers, I would say, who say, oh my God, I've reconnected with this bright-eyed, bushy-tailed version of myself that I lost somewhere along the way. I used to be so hopeful, so optimistic, and then I wasn't. I became cynical and over it, and 
I lost that about myself. And now I'm in the space that's so risen and I've reconnected with that. But I see so much of that in you. You know, what is that like for you? And what advice would you give people in terms of, especially young people, in terms of hanging on to that optimism? Yeah, I mean, this one of the key ways is hanging around with other young people over and over and over again. I mean, and optimistic we, people. Yeah, exactly. So as we age and we have more experience, that's when we start to become less optimistic because it starts to be clear to us that, whoa, you can't jump off that cliff you're going to hurt yourself, you know, that sort of thing. Whereas a kid jumps, right? An optimistic person also will jump because you have faith, you know, that something okay will happen at the end of it or that you'll fly. And so I, I don't know. I just have a, I, I think I've been told this, that I, I generally lean towards optimism anyway. And so I'm always defaulting to yes. So that, I think, is the guiding factor for me. And part of that is trying to find environments and people. That's why I love going and talking to people. I love, you know, groups where I can get the kumbaya moments mm-hmm. happening. Because I think when people get there, they, they realize, whoa, that's the area, the center of myself, like you said, that they'd forgotten about. Mm-hmm. Meditation, those sorts of things, mm-hmm. just being calm for a moment, I think gets you there as well. But just the inherent kind of joy in in people who haven't experienced something yet, mm-hmm. if you have experience in something, how about bringing people into this new activity, whatever it is? I don't know, maybe you, you play handball really well. <laughs> you know? Ayahuasca. Yeah, there you go. I mean, you mentioned <laughs> this exactly. Like anything that you have found a place and a space and meaning in, and it doesn't even have to be that deep even. I mean, the deeper, the better, of course. But this idea of bringing people who have not experienced that just so that you can teach them why you love it so much, I think that reintroduces you to that pre piece. We, we all forget about the pre of the thing that we love. Mm. Watching someone else learn to walk for the first time, you remember, whoa, I've been walking for decades. Mm. This person, they're just learning how to do it. They're going to have such a good time. I love that. Yeah. And again, I'm just stunned at the level of self-awareness that you have around, hey, these are the things that actually energize me, that keep my levels of creative energy, optimism up, which is spending time with groups. I'm an extroverted type of person. I like hanging out with other people and specific type of people, right? Mm -hmm. The ones that are going to build you up and not just drain on your energy. And then there's this level of self-awareness that when I teach something, I Mm -hmm. actually really enjoy it. I find a great amount of value in seeing someone light up. And that's something that connects to your value system and whatever your value system might be. But there's a sense of like, you've done a lot of inner work in terms of understanding Mm -hmm. yourself. And then you are disciplined enough to make those conscious choices every day in line with what you know energizes you and not going to get goaded into doing other things because you have that discipline, the presence and that keep making those decisions for yourself and saying no to the other things. I think that's absolutely right. And I mean, the sense of self develops over time. It's very rare that someone who, you know, has a few decades on earth has that yet. 
And that's okay. Mm-hmm. That's okay. And I think that surrounding yourself maybe with um, people that that you trust, that you have experience. This is why mentorship is so important, of course. But having people around you that you trust, you feel comfortable with, they're your sponges or the, the safe places to fall, I think is really important in developing that sense of yourself. Because if you're just around people that are just mm. going to tell you what you want to hear or don't give you space to act up sometimes and learn from that, then you're not going to define yourself, define what you want to do, where you want to mm. go, who you want to be around, all those things. Mm, beautiful. And I think that a lot of people take a lot longer than you to get there. And it's just fantastic. And, you know, it's it's absolutely possible to get there much faster as well if you work at it and you have the, the practice and the discipline. You seek out this personal absolutely. development journey. And I'm seeing such a strong correlation with my entrepreneurs that are successful and those that have purposefully gone down this journey of self-development, right. not looking externally, throwing themselves at their work, but yes. throwing themselves at themselves. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think the, uh, the one of the biggest pieces of work that any entrepreneur can do is to understand themselves. Yeah, because all that sense of self, all that real understanding of why and who you are and what makes you tick and what makes you more productive is all of the things yeah. we've been discussing today, which are huge factors in, in your successes and so many great insights. Sabrina, this has been such an amazing episode. I'm so excited about it. I love it. And I appreciate it so much, the opportunity to share with you and listeners and I mean, it, this is just, it's really been a great time. Mm. And with that, you have been listening to Enormous Issues, Audacious Ideas. You can find us on Instagram at Audacious Ideas or on our website, www.audaciousideaspodcast.com. Sabrina, where can everybody find you and Seed? We are at www.seedbox.com. Dot systems with an S on the end. And I mean, if anybody wants to contact me directly, they can reach out to Sabrina at seedbox.systems. I'd be happy to talk mm. about any of the things. And when can we uh, go ahead and purchase these starter kits? Now. <laughs> I mean, at least the, the starter kit is, is available. You can sign up for our newsletter to keep up to date on when new products are coming out. That's exciting. So all of you who are looking to start an apartment garden in your home or outside on your porch, go head over to www.seedbox.systems with an S and purchase your box starter kit for the low, low price of $40. $40. What a steal. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I know, right? Yeah. And it comes with, <laughs> all that technology comes with everything you need to start growing your own food. Uh, we had to do like a shameless plug in there, you know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and with that, remember, if you are enjoying this podcast and you would like to support this really important work that we are trying to do in changing the world, please go ahead and subscribe and share it with a couple of your friends who might also think it's uh, pretty cool what we're doing and also feel like they are world changers. Thanks again. You've been an awesome guest. And with that, I'm Rhea Naidu and this is Enormous Issues, Audacious Ideas. See you next week.